everybody, and it must be another edition of The Learning Curve. I'm Kara Kandel here with my co-host, Gerard Robinson. Gerard, how are you doing today? Doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I I can't complain. Today's a good day. Woke up pretty happy, wondering what day it was, but still good day. Everything seems to be under control, at least for for the moment. Um, Gerard, I've got a question or two for you, something that I've been thinking about debating with friends and colleagues. And also my mother seems really into this debate right now. And I want, I want your take. Um, So some folks are saying, wow, this moment is going to make everybody realize the value of of homeschooling and people are going to try and figure out, um, you know, we've been talking about home education or, or teaching at home versus true homeschooling. And, and some of my friends are saying like, wow, I am really thinking that this could be an option for me. I might find a way to rearrange my life so that I can homeschool my kids. Whereas I've got other friends who are like, oh my goodness, please get these children back to school as soon as possible. I can't take it. <laughs> and, and I'm hearing arguments on both sides for like, oh, there's going to be a mass exodus from the system or, oh, more and more people are going to learn to appreciate, to truly appreciate their district schools. I'm curious as to know uh, what what the take is in the Robinson household and, and what you're hearing in the neighborhood. So the Robinson household, we look forward to the point when our children will return uh, back to school. Uh, they've had great support from their teachers who've used handheld devices and other uh, ways of getting learning to our household. So, you know, I definitely would not call what uh, Kimberly and I are doing is homeschooling. I would just say that we're schooling at home because homeschooling really is, uh, I would say, both a art and a science. And the people who do it and Amen have done it for a really long time uh, are pretty well, you know, they're really pretty well uh grounded in exactly why they're doing it, you know, and so I'll try to make that distinction. Um, there are a few families I talked to who said they may give uh, more thought to homeschooling, uh, but that's today, you know, five and a half weeks in. Uh, we'll see what happens if schools, for example, remain closed for the rest of the year. Um, that number could increase. So right now for us, uh, we'll, we'll keep our education plans uh, is going, not many people are talking about homeschooling. But what I will say, this actually was part of our conversation last night over dinner, some families are thinking about holding their children back a year. And particularly yep. for the yep. younger students who they said they're learning, you know, they're getting a good idea about pedagogy, they're getting a good idea about the basics, but there's some things that they're simply missing, just in the nuances of not being in the school building or the fact that they're not with their peers, or the fact that the parents who are involved in more day-to-day teaching, uh, they're, they're not trained as teachers. And so the question now is, you know, do we keep uh, one or both of our daughters back one year? And so parents are having that conversation, which four weeks ago, I didn't think about. Yeah. Well, and I love that it's a conversation that people are having and that feels comfortable to have, because I think there's such a stigma attached sometimes to Oh, holding a child back and what's that going to do? When in reality, for a lot of kids, it can be a really great thing if it's done the right way, right? I mean, certainly mm-hmm. you don't want kids to be just repeating the same stuff that they didn't understand the first time. But in this case, we've, we're realizing that um, for, for a variety of reasons and not to blame our teachers and not to blame our schools, but for a variety of reasons, they're not being exposed to the things that they need to be to be successful in the next grade. And then beyond that, I, I'm hearing from a lot of 
friends and, and, you know, I mean, being the sort of education lady, I get a lot of phone calls on this, um, you know, like, what do you do or what's your experience and what should I do? Um, and, and, but what I'm finding is that it's less about, um, necessarily what, what teachers are doing or what schools are doing, because there's so much variation, but the fact that so many of us now have insight that we didn't have before into how our kids learn into like, I'm looking at some, I'm looking at the difference between my two kids and how they engage. Right. And I'm going, wow. Oh, I have three kids, by the way, I shouldn't leave out the third one, but you know, he's, he's just uncoloring books right now, but, um, it's, it's, uh, (laughs) but it's, it's a really interesting moment to be able to look and see like, wow, I can see that learning gap. How, how, how is that there? And what are we going to do about it? So I, I love that you're hearing that folks are thinking about, holding back their kids without thinking that that's necessarily uh, a terrible thing. And I'm I'm glad you brought up a point about non-blaming teachers, because in situations like this, it's just too easy to blame teachers. I think that's cowardly. We've got hardworking teachers who are doing the best they can Uh, right now. Some of them had some several challenges when we were in school. So much of this right now has more to do what I would call home ecology of what does this really look like for our family moving forward? So uh, teachers have a role to play in that conversation, but I definitely think it's much more family uh, driven and uh, just want to make that note. Yeah, there you go. I mean, just take us right back to James Coleman. It's like so much is about the family, right? Absolutely. I get to go back and with this week, with my first story of the week, I get to think back uh, a little bit about my, my own family because this one comes to us from Detroit. Now, I grew up in a place called Canton, Michigan, right between Detroit and Ann Arbor. Um, and uh, shout out to Canton. I'm sure lots of people are listening from Canton. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Maybe my mom. But, um, you know, so this comes to us from Chalkbeat, Detroit, and it's a look at how different charter schools in Detroit, how this in, in a charter network have sort of navigated the coronavirus closure. And I always appreciate these kinds of stories, these little case studies that I think, to your point, uh, give us some insight into the hard work that teachers and schools are really doing. And, and it's, it's easy to lose sight of that. But I want to start by this first, what I think should be shocking to many people. It, it won't be shocking to you, I'm sure, Gerard, but um, 40 percent of households in Detroit lack Internet access. 40 percent. Now, we know that a lot of families across the U.S. lack Internet access, and oftentimes we're thinking about that in the rural context, but 40 percent in a major metropolitan area in this country. And so we know that, obviously, Internet's probably available there, but families aren't able to get it. They can't pay for it, whatever the case may be. But even though, even despite this, in this one charter network that's being profiled, and I'll give you, this is, as I said, it's from Chalkbeat by uh, Kobe Levin. And the title of the article is Late Night Phone Calls, Tears, and Video Lessons, How One Detroit Charter Network Has Navigated 46 Days of Coronavirus Closures. Now, and he goes on to sort of just look at, give us some little facts about what's going on here. So even though 40% of households in Detroit lack internet access, um, so in week one of this um, social distancing, this charter network only had 30% of its students online. Now 90% of those kids are online. 90%. That's a big deal. That is a really big deal, and that speaks to the hard work of the schools and the parents, but, you know, the schools in identifying who needed it and getting it to them. Now, it really, I think this is an honest article and an honest look at the fact that really our schools were just not prepared for this in any way, shape, or form. And I hope that in a subsequent podcast, we can really have the preparedness conversation, but, um, but some really cool stuff 
is coming out of here. So they give an example of um, one one charter teacher in just one of the schools was like creating lessons for a small group of kids. And she was doing it really well and the kids were being engaged. And so now it's being used across schools. And this just got me thinking, like, imagine if you could get to a point where um, where this didn't even have to happen within a charter network or within a district, but you could just capture that one awesome teacher with that really great lesson and get it. You know, it's Khan Academy style, sort of, but there are a lot of great teachers out there. We're just not capturing their work. We've got an opportunity to do that now. Um, it also tells this really cute sort of anecdotal story about, um, I think that most parents will relate to this, how kids and teachers are corresponding um, via email or Google or how many emails you get in a day to tell you which email to open to get online at what time so that you know the other email to open <laughs> and sort of getting <laughs> communication <laughs> under control between how the kids communicate, how the teachers communicate, and the poor parents with their heads exploding in between trying to figure out who's communicating. But um, it's, it's a really great look into how schools have pivoted in how teachers have adjusted, in how students and families are adjusting. And I have to say, this one gave me a bit of hope. This gave me a bit of hope that, first of all, we can do this and we should be learning to set ourselves up. You know, let, let's hope that, this, that we're not doing this in the fall, but let's set ourselves up for Detroit's epic snowstorms that they usually can't plow because there's not enough money to get the streets plowed. Let's set, let's set our communities up as Florida has with its virtual school, you know, when it had hurricanes to do this right, to do this well. And now that we know it's possible, we can start really having that conversation about quality going forward. Detroit is a very special city to the United States for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of great things to celebrate. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of challenges. I mean, 40% of the people in 2020 in an international city, that just says a lot. Um, I had a chance to really do a deep dive into some of the dynamics in Detroit when I uh, was president of Bale, uh, the Black Alliance for Educational Options. And uh, some of our founding members were from Detroit. In fact, our first president, uh, Lawrence Patrick uh, III, was uh, uh, from Detroit. And I had a chance to do a study there to interview a hundred and some parents actually from Detroit and, and poverty's real. And so I'm glad that uh, charter school leaders stepped in. Again, our charter schools uh, often receive 75% on every dollar compared to their public school colleagues and oftentimes don't have access to some of the buildings and other challenges. And so despite all the, the rhetoric about charter schools having all the, the nuances and basically, you know, get out of regulation free pass. This is an example of leadership and trying to find ways of closing the gap in some unique, unique ways often without the uh, same footing and funding as someone else. So kudos to those leaders, to the teachers, to the students, and also to the families who chose us. Cheers to that. I have to, we need to give them a shout out because this is about the new paradigm charter network in Detroit. And the one other thing I have to mention here that I didn't is that what the school leaders here are truly putting front of mind, too, is student social and emotional health. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we need to recognize that Detroit, um, you know, it's not got uh, the largest population anymore, but it's lost upwards of 800 people to the coronavirus, which means that you can bet that a lot of kids in that school have been affected. Um, you know, know somebody who has who has fallen to the to COVID-19, to this disease. And so just another just another um, look into the work that our teachers and schools do. But 
Enough said, Gerard. I think you too have a pretty good story of the week. And my story, like yours, brings me back to my childhood. Uh, this is from the Catholic News Network, and the title is Catholic Leaders Press Trump to Support Aid to Schools During Pandemic. And this is from uh, April 28th. I uh, attended Catholic schools who raised 1 to 12. I had a chance to work at Marquette University in St. Peter's, so I've got a long history of Catholic education. And so there were uh, approximately 600 Catholic leaders and educators who had a telephone conversation with the president uh, to really stress the importance that Catholic schools matter and that as he is investing money into schools across the board, both public and private, they want to make a special case that we remember the role that Catholic schools you know, play in our education landscape. Uh, you know, some of the leaders who were part of the call uh, included Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York, Cardinal Sean O'Malley from Boston, Archbishop Jose Gomez from Los Angeles, my uh, former city, and others. And they made really two big points. Number one, Catholic schools uh, educate not only a sizable portion of the five million plus students who are in private schools, but many of their graduates uh, go on to play important roles in government, in business, in the military. And these are some of the people who are currently helping us uh, make sense out of uh, COVID-19 today. And the second point was to make sure that when we say uh, education and when we say the role of civil society, that there's also a faith factor. You know, there are a lot of faith-based communities right now, Catholic obviously being one, who are looking at what we have right now as part of a social good that they're looking beyond um, zip codes, they're looking beyond gender, they're looking beyond education. They see a hurting humanity, and they said that Catholic schools, those of the Catholic faith, are paying a big role in trying to, uh, you know, bring some sanity to what we're going through, and that we just need to make sure that Catholic uh, institutions uh, are part of that conversation. And when you think about the fact that Catholic schools graduate nearly 95% of the people who attend those schools, over 80% find themselves going to four-year colleges. We have a number of, as we talk about poverty, nearly half of the students who attend Catholic school participate in the federal nutrition program. Uh, we know it's free and reduced price lunch. And so the challenges that we see in public schools with poverty and access or lack of access sometimes to internet, lack of access to healthcare, we have those same challenges in Catholic schools. And people often think that because something is private that it is necessarily wealthy. That is not the case, although we do have wealthy Catholics as well. So this was a story that uh, hit home with me and um, glad to see President Trump and his team uh, have a conversation with Catholic leaders. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, let's not forget how many Catholic schools closed during the Great Recession um, to the detriment of, of kids. And, and I think that if you're not, a, not an edu-wonk or an ed-policy person um, or a Catholic school student or parent, it's hard to overlook the very important role that these schools have played in the past, you know, 100, 150 years in American society. Um, it's, it's huge. So much has been written, as you said, about, um, about the high expectations and great academic outcomes that Catholic schools provide. And so um, to see them at such risk during this moment is, is really frightening and glad that we still have great advocates out there for all schools, right? For all, Absolutely. all kids. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to do a, a little bit of a hard turn here um, in a minute, but very excited about our next guest. 
Um, he actually, uh, was just this morning, had an opinion piece in the New York Times. In just a moment, we are going to be back with John Barry to talk about uh, the current moment and its relationship to the 1918 flu pandemic. Well, we are so pleased to have with us today John M. Barry. He's a prize-winning and number one New York Times bestselling author whose books have not only won several dozen awards, but involved him with policy. In 2005, the National Academies of Science named The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, a study of the 1918 pandemic, the year's outstanding book on science or medicine. Barry was a member of the original team which recommended non-pharmaceutical interventions, including social distancing, in the event of a pandemic. And he worked with both the Bush II and Obama White Houses on pandemic preparedness and response. His other books have, of course, also been acclaimed, including Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America. That was named 1998's Best Book of American History. And in 2005, the New York Public Library named it one of the 50 best books of the preceding 50 years, if, as if that's not enough. And while his book Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty was named a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. We should also say that on the day this podcast is being recorded, um, John Barry has out an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, Will Warm Weather Slow the Coronavirus? We are so very pleased to have you with us today, John. Thanks for, thanks for hanging with us on The Learning Curve. Uh, my pleasure. So, you know, having read your op-ed this morning, I think it, it, it's, it's fantastic that you are, you, you're, shedding light on some of the questions that I think so many of us who are still locked at our homes have. And I think one of the, one of the things that is common among people right now is that perhaps one of our biggest fears might not be the virus itself, although many of us are, feel, are fearful, but it's, it's fear of the unknown too. And one of the things I really appreciated about your op-ed this morning is that you help us understand the commonalities and differences between what we're experiencing now and the 1918 flu pandemic. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about what you see are, as the major lessons that we've learned from the pandemic that can help us understand the current moment. Well, I mean, the two biggest lessons from 1918, and I'm not sure we've learned them, uh, we've learned part of them. Uh, the first is to tell the truth for those in authority dealing with the public to be absolutely transparent and truthful. That's one we seem to have some trouble with. Uh, although certainly some people are telling the truth and that applies not only here, but, but worldwide. Uh, the second involves social distancing, uh, you know, analysis of events in cities in 1918 is demonstrated its effectiveness and if there was any doubt about that analysis, uh, what has happened around the world in the last few months is crystal clear proof that social distancing measures uh, work, that they can be extremely effective. Of course, they are not pain-free. Uh, they do impose economic costs and, and a lot of hardship on some people and, you know, balancing people's lives and, and the economic cost is, is, you know, is a tough one. 
and trying to figure out where to reach that balance. That's really helpful. One of the things that you talk about in the op-ed um, published this morning in the New York Times uh, is the is this question of warm weather. Is that going to make things better? And you also talk a little bit about at, at the end of the op-ed what it what it's really going to mean to reopen in phases. Um, having been part of a team that you know that planned for something like this, can you tell us a little bit about what you think we? might expect, I know you can't tell us what to expect, but what we might expect in the coming months. Um, we know that some states are already, you know, they're, let's go, opening up the economies, opening up everything. Here where I sit, uh, up in the Northeast, we're still on, on quite a lockdown. We're not going to leave our homes um, probably for the next month. So it's a different approach and, and different experiences. But generally, can you think, can you speak to what most of the country should expect over the summer? Well, you know, respiratory viruses like influenza, and we don't know for sure, but probably COVID-19, uh, survive better in cold weather and low humidity, low humidity. And that's one reason why influenza and colds are much more common in winter than in summer. But of course, in addition, epidemiologically, you know, people in winter uh, tend to be inside uh, and uh, not necessarily very good ventilation and close contact with people. So that's another reason why I think as opposed to in summer, you're outside. So that's another reason why uh, respiratory viruses tend to spread more easily and more widely in winter. Uh, however, a more important factor is susceptibility of the population. Uh, in 1918, you had a new virus entering the population, and susceptibility seemed to be much more important uh, than the seasons. Uh, the, it came in waves. The second wave, which was the first wave, was very spotty. It missed most of the world and most of the United States. Uh, the second wave would hit all around the world, essentially simultaneously, northern and southern hemisphere. Um, it started in July, midsummer, in uh, Switzerland. Uh, it ended in January 1919 in Australia, which was dead middle of the summer in Australia. The only reason it waited that long to hit Australia was they had a very effective uh, quarantine on incoming ships, so they managed to keep it out. Uh, it finally leaked in January, and an estimated 40% of Australians got sick in the middle of the summer. Uh, so because of the susceptibility of the population, and right now, uh, even if uh, 20 times, which is sort of the outer edge of the estimates by modelers, if 20 times the number of reported cases are actually infected, that still leaves roughly 95% of the population of the country, and essentially the city worldwide susceptible to the virus. So given the fact that this virus is very easily transmitted, it's significantly more contagious than influenza. Uh, with that susceptibility, I don't think summer will be a major factor in tamping down spread of the virus. 
it certainly will have some effect. There will be less spread than there would have been otherwise. There's so much susceptibility and it's so easily transmissible. I think plenty of people uh, will have the potential to get sick during the summer. Uh, exactly how that plays out depends largely on how we come out of the uh, lockdown. Absolutely. So, uh, so part of what I'm hearing here, dear listeners, is that uh, our beach dreams, we should temper those a little bit. We're not going to be at crowded public beaches hanging out if we want to stay safe this summer, it sounds like. One of the, one of the things that we think about here on the learning curve, of course, is education, um, K, to, K to 12, K to 16, in fact. And, you know, I think one of the things that's on not only the minds of educators, but on the minds of parents one, one is back to school. What does that look like? And, and we can envision many different things for that. But one of the questions I have for you as somebody who's written extensively and thought so much about this is how we explain what's going on to kids, especially especially little kids, right? My own kids this morning, um, were they're old enough to ask the right questions. And sometimes it's hard, I think, for parents and for educators to balance um, what they need to know to be safe um, with with things that are quite frankly quite scary. Um, we know that uh, the 1980, 1918 influenza killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. Uh, we're looking at really serious numbers here too. Could you provide some advice on how we should help kids understand this? Well, I'm um... As I said, one of the main lessons from 1918 is to tell the truth. I advocate that to everybody. Uh, uh, you know, maybe not to a three-year-old. Even there, let's figure out a way to say something truthful. Uh, but certainly to somebody six, seven, eight, much less, you know, 10, 12, uh, I think they should be able to deal with the truth. Uh, one thing is they're experiencing something that, Nobody alive with a memory at any rate. My mother's actually 102 and her mind is perfect. So she was born in 1918 uh, as the pandemic first hit, but she certainly has no memory of it. Uh, But the kids are experiencing something that nobody alive can remember or has lived through. Uh, It is not common that they are, in a sense, part of history and can make their own history. Uh, and they have a certain amount of responsibility, even as kids. Uh, you know, this disease is dangerous and they can protect themselves, their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents by acting responsibly. So it's putting a certain amount of adulthood on, on, a child, uh, but it's a special time, unfortunately. Well, John, this is Gerard. I want to thank you for joining us for this very important conversation today. So as I think about your work and, you know, it's on the past, but I want to just take a, a little moment to talk about the future, uh, the present. So we know that right now that whenever we have a pandemic, it really exposes for the American public some of our social ills and some of our social challenges. We know that uh, poor people, uh, we know people who have pre-existing conditions, 
uh, a number of them who have financial challenges. They're the ones in some instances who are bearing a big brunt of uh, not only the deaths, but also uh, the symptoms and maybe lack of care. We know that in some cities, African-Americans are dying at a disproportionate rate compared to other groups. That's today. Well, let's go back to 1918, 1919, the time of your book. We know that African-American soldiers were uh, returning uh, from World War One. Many of them experienced a number of challenges from you know, with discrimination based upon Jim Crow laws, uh, Klan violence and lynchings. And some of this actually led to race riots uh, in the North and the South. How do you see the 1918 flu? How did it impact African-American communities and U.S. race relations? Well, back up for a second, it sounds like you uh, read Rising Tide. There's a chapter in the book on the 1927 flood. I, it's a very important chapter in that book about events in 1919 and the return of African-Americans uh, from the war. And in fact, the influenza book grew out of what I planned to write about events at uh, the home front during World War One and events in 1919, it's like the whole country exploded. I think it's one of the most interesting years in American history. I never wrote that book. I ended up uh, an influenza exclusively, it, the, but the influenza book actually grew out of my starting to write on that other larger issue. Uh, you know, the I don't think the pandemic played much of a role in uh, race relations. Uh, oddly enough. I think that at least in the military, where the records were pretty good, it seems that African-American soldiers were incrementally uh, less uh, affected by the pandemic. I've never seen, nor have I in my own speculation, ever come up with an explanation for that. Uh, It could be just bad data. I I don't understand why, and neither does anybody else I've ever discussed it with, understand why, if that data was accurate, what accounted for it. Um, but it, strictly when it comes to race relations, I don't think the pandemic played much of a role. Obviously, everything that you were talking about, you know, the emergence of the Klan, uh, largely because Woodrow Wilson endorsed the, a movie called Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, inter- interestingly, the person who made that movie subsequently made a movie called Tolerance, uh, which didn't get much attention, but it was kind of trying to make up for Birth of a Nation. You know, Wilson imposed segregation on the federal workforce. It had not been segregated before Wilson. Uh, you know, there was a lot of, you know, the pro-patriotism uh, anti-foreigner that was largely manufactured by Wilson to help get Americans patriotic and intense about winning the war. Uh, and that had repercussions later and the growth of the Klan and the spread of all sorts of things. Uh, you know, there was a, but again, back to the pandemic, and I can talk about these other things if you want, but back to the pandemic, I don't think the pandemic itself had had much impact. Okay. 
Well, we do know that COVID-19 has had a really big impact on our global economy. Uh, we know in the U.S. alone, 20 plus million people have filed for unemployment. A number of small businesses have closed. You know, I think about the number of places in Charlottesville where I live, where I drive by and they're closed. And so I'm not sure they're going to ever open again. So when we think about the global economic impact where there's going to be a recession or a depression, what happened to the American economy in 1918-19 and what impact did the flu pandemic have on it? Well, it did have impact, but I don't really think it's a precedent. One of the main differences between COVID-19 and influenza is the length of time during which the society is subject to the disease. Influenza's incubation period is roughly a third the time of COVID-19. Uh, the disease actually passes through the body. The course of illness is, is much faster in influenza than COVID-19. People shed virus longer uh, in COVID-19 than they do for influenza. The whole thing is stretched out. So the influenza pandemic 1918 would pass through any given community in six to 10 weeks, and then it was essentially gone. There was a later wave, but in the interim, there was essentially no disease. What we're experiencing now is much more economic impact because it's stretched out for a much longer time. In addition, uh, cities in 1918, not all, but the overwhelming majority did issue closing orders, uh, but they, what they closed down was places of public gathering, uh, including churches, schools, stuff like that. They did not issue general orders as we've, what the actions we're taking today is much more extreme uh, than anything that occurred in 1918 in terms of closing orders. It's having significant impact as well in saving lives. Uh, but because so many things are closed today that more or less remained open in 1918, like restaurants, well, not restaurants, they were closed, but mm -hmm. other small businesses, uh, and the duration is so much longer than the impact economically today is much greater. And of course, in 1918, we were at war. So, so many industries were considered essential as part of the war effort. There was tremendous absenteeism and it wasn't at all uncommon to have well over 50% of the workforce absent from a job. Uh, either because they were afraid uh, or they were sick or they were taking care of somebody who was sick. Uh, but in terms of actually being closed by, uh, you know, a governor's uh, or a mayor's decision, uh, that did not happen uh, other than, you know, bars, restaurants and so forth. So what we are experiencing today is to the best of my knowledge, never been experienced before in, in history. Um, no, very, uh, very good point. So this is much more of a forward thinking question. You know, if you were going to, you know, assess how you think, for example, since we're talking about schools, you know, 12 years from now, someone who's in the first grade um, is going to have a chance to write about this. How do you think we as adults or what should we as adults do right now in terms of truth-telling, as you mentioned? What can we do so that uh, the first grader today, 12 years from now, uh, can write a story uh, that can become not only a best-selling book like your own, 
but that can tell the truth and really capture the moment. What would you tell that student? Well, keep your eyes open and your ears open and remember what you're going through. Uh, as I said before, you know, this is a moment that nobody alive has lived through and hopefully, you know, won't occur or recur for, you know, a good long time in the future. Although, you know, I mean, it's a totally random event. It could happen three years in a row and not again for a thousand years. It's like a hurricane. Uh, you know, they're coming. You don't know how strong they're going to be. You don't know when they're going to hit. Uh, you know, so somebody, a kid, you know, serious enough, you know, uh, uh, someone in the first grade is not going to be taking notes, but maybe somebody in the seventh or eighth grade might actually take notes uh, and, and write down their own feelings about this so they can recall them later. Great. Thank you. Fantastic. I have to say my own uh, 10 year old daughter has been writing songs on the piano about COVID that are, that are quite interesting, but I keep encouraging her to record them so that she'll remember them. Cause I can't get her to write in a journal. I'll say that. Um, before we let you go, I have a little bit more of a personal question. And that is as one of a probably very small group of people that saw this coming long before, um, long before the general population did, I wonder how it is you are experiencing this moment of social distancing, or as I hear some are now calling it physical distancing. Um, what, what do you find to be the upside and what do you find to be the challenges? Well, I don't know if there is an upside. I guess my wife and I are spending more time together. And, you know, fortunately, that's an, that's an upside. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've seen jokes about uh, people who didn't think it was such an upside. Uh, you know, I, well, it's not such a small group who saw this coming. You know, I think anybody, I mean, I guess it's a relatively small group, but anybody who understood public health and anybody who understood anything about infectious disease knew that something like this was going to hit, you know, uh, the Bush administration. Uh, the second one, you know, passed a $7 billion bill to start preparations for a pandemic. Uh, they invested a lot of money. Uh, in you know the national stockpile they created you know, vaccine manufacturing technology uh, basic research uh, the planning process that I was part of uh, you know so it was out there it's just that emphasis has been and then of course we had a Ebola scare uh, I mean Ebola was never going to become a, a serious epidemic because it's too easy to control it was never going to become widespread as this is, but that, you know, doesn't mean it wasn't serious. Um, so we went through that. We, you know, nonetheless, you know, this administration, you know, unfortunately made some, some mistaken choices. Uh, you know, so people in the policy area were always aware of this. You know, certainly the Department of Defense had plans for pandemics, you know, health and human services. Uh, the professionals whose job it is to think about threats, they they all knew about it and were not exactly caught by surprise. Uh, you know, the general public may have taken it for granted, and I guess they did, uh, or just took for granted that they could be protected. 
uh, then they would not be exposed to something like this. Uh, now, but Tom Frieden, the former head of CDC, when he when he left that position, uh, you know, he said this, you know, the Washington Post asked him what it kept him up at night, what uh, was a nightmare scenario for him. And he said, you know, uh, he was talking about a, a virus very much like this, that that would always be the worst case. Yeah, it, it sort of reminds one of um, of watching science fiction movies and thinking that it can never come true. And now some of them look incredibly prescient. Um, it was just such a pleasure to have you with us today and, and to learn about history and to learn about the work. So thank you very, very much. And though, as I would like to say, I hope that we can have you on again. I really also hope <laughs> not necessarily on this topic or in this moment. So, um, but, but what a, uh, what a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. You take care. Okay. It was fun. Thank you. Good luck to you all. Stay well. Take care. Thanks. You too. And that, listeners, was John M. Barry, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. That was a really good interview. I mean, he's got a lot of information about pandemics. He's also got a lot of information about history. And, you know, what I found particularly interesting is he also published a book about the 1927 flood in Mississippi and the impact that it had on race relations in that state. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, given his work in the 1918 influenza, you know, did that in fact also have an impact on race relations, particularly given the fact that we were uh, in wartime? But uh, his answer was really interesting and he covered some good ground. And I'm glad that we had him on board. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more, Gerard. And, you know, interesting thing is, uh, you know, impact on race relations or what, what do we learn too? I think to the question that you were asking. What do all of these things, these experiences uh, shine a light on in terms of race relations, in terms of inequities in society, stuff that you and I have been talking about for the past couple of weeks, right? I mean, when <laughs> you'd think that more things should shine a light, but, uh, but these certainly do. So it, it encourages me to read a little bit more while I'm locked up here. My tweet of the week is from Education Week, and it's from the Politics K-12 section from April 27th. And it says, Betsy DeVos introduces grants to rethink doing COVID-19. And as you know, there's billions of dollars uh, that the Trump administration supported to try to uh, bring us out and to have a recovery. And there's a section of that money going to education. And recently, Secretary DeVos said that we need to basically rethink uh, schools and the delivery models. And so she created a uh, and line item focused on that. And the new money is authorized by the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. And she's going to employ 1% set aside from the nearly $31 billion in education aid to grant to states uh, with the highest coronavirus burden. And as we've talked about on our show for weeks, this is having a really big impact on superintendents, on state chiefs, teachers and others. And so uh, I think this is a step in the right direction. But I'd also like to say that, you know, Secretary DeVos comes from the business sector and what she brings to this job in a unique way is looking at things holistically. And so not only looking at the idea of saying, guess what, here's $31 billion 
do what you will. She's looking at it through the lens of a business person who also understands the importance of using entrepreneurial approaches to govern. So I think setting aside 1% for this is great. And particularly as it's going to relate to uh, those in need of more technology and access to learning in unique ways. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's 1%, right? It's 1% of a lot of money, but still it's 1%. But to the point that you just made, um, and, and let's recognize that education is the domain of the states, and that's where we need to see most of the action here. But any impetus that states have or can, are given <laughs> will take to, to rethink how we deliver school, to rethink how, um, you know, what this system should look like, to rethink um, who gets to choose, actually, whether that's with regard to remote learning, which uh, I would, I'm just so keen to see a lot of entrepreneurial thinking here. How are we going to know what's quality on and on, you know, but I think that this is, this is the right kind of thinking to push folks in the States to say, yeah, maybe, maybe the same old, same old isn't what we should be doing. And there's an opportunity here. So I'm right there with you, Gerard. All right. Now, on to something very, very exciting, dear listeners, because next week on the show, we are going to have um, a very important, very famous, Miss the Kimberly Robinson, the Elizabeth D. and Richard A. Merrill Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law and Professor of Education at the Curry School of Education. And Gerard, perhaps you have a few um, words to say about our upcoming guest. I'm, I'm super excited because I know she's at least famous in your household. Um, I think she's overrated. Um, but I don't think she's overrated at all. So <laughs> yes, uh, she's, uh, she's the uh, second Robinson in the household, uh, but <laughs> no, no, in all seriousness, uh, she's one of the, uh, nation's leading scholars in the area of education and policy and law, uh, particularly as it relates to closing the opportunity gap, uh, for students in both urban and rural areas and she has a new book and um i will leave it at that but i look forward to speaking to her uh, next week yeah me too really really excited and so i feel so lucky that we don't have to reach very far beyond the learning curve family to find uh, brilliance so here we go until next week <laughs>